Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. All right. I need everyone to get up. I need everyone to get up. Stand up. I need you to stretch. We're about to take off again. You've Look, I've given you hours to relax, hours to recover. You've been able to be lazy. You've been able to just lay back. Who knows what you've been doing, but now it's time to get up. We've got, hey guys, we got a marathon we're running. I didn't mean for you to stop and just go off to a restaurant somewhere and be gone for, for the rest. No, I need you. We, look, we have a marathon to run. We've got to get to the end of Jeremiah by the end of August, and we are in chapter 33, so we have a long ways to go, so I need you to stretch. I need you to get ready. I need you to grab that Bible, that notebook, something to write with. Now, I look, while you took that long break, hopefully you were reading Jeremiah chapter 31, because that's that's what you were supposed to be reading. So hopefully you've been reading. Remember the 15 I wills? Yeah, you've, had, you've been given some assignments today, right? And reading Jeremiah 31 10 times. Hopefully you've been doing some of that. But now we have to move forward. So good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, August the 28th, 2023. It is currently 2.15 p.m. Central Time. And we are in the middle of a Jeremiah marathon as we try to finish the book of Jeremiah by the end of August. This has been a part of our summer Bible study exercise. We have dedicated the entire summer to the book of Jeremiah. And hopefully it has been a fun, interesting, informative, convicting, and challenging study. And hopefully you've benefited in some small way from it. I really, I've done the best I can. You can judge that as being a success or being a failure, but hopefully, even if you judge it as a failure, you, I hopefully I've, I've gotten you into the book of Jeremiah. So if I've done that, even if you think it's a failure, well, then I guess I accomplished something, but are you ready to go? Just for those who may just be tuning in for the first time, wow, you have missed a lot. All right. You have missed a lot. So you may want to go back. You can find the Bible study exercise series. It's all put together under the Church One app. That's the easiest way. Download the Church One app, Church O-N-E. That's Church O-N-E for an Apple or Android device. Once you download the app, look for the series Bible study exercise and just go back to the very first one on Jeremiah. It's simple. Or on Sermons 2.0, do a search for Theology Central, look for our series, and then look for Bible Study Exercise. You'll see everything from Jeremiah within that series. On all the other podcasting apps, 
you just will have to do <laughs> it's not broken down in this series so you're just gonna have to scroll down and scroll down and scroll down and find the first one and then just slowly work your way up and that's not those those apps I yeah they're not they don't really they're not really designed in a lot of ways for a big library of episodes because it's just all they're not you can't categorize them they're not organized in any way shape or form so that's why I do love the church one app and the sermons 2.0 app because everything is organized into series so um however you find us however you listen to us just I would challenge you to go back and listen but for this episode for this kind of marathon it's it's a marathon, but it's a sprint because we have to do this really fast. We're utilizing the, the teachings of the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee uh, from his ministry through the Bible Ministries. They've given us permission to use his content. We are very grateful for them. Um, and But what we're not using it, I mean, they've given me permission. I could just say, hey, here's Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Listen, everyone. But we are, I'm playing it. We're critiquing it. We're reviewing it. We're analyzing it. And we're we're turning all of this discussion hopefully into something beneficial because you're hearing his perspective, my perspective. You hear when we agree, you hear when we disagree, you hear when I fill in things that he's skipping because remember he was trying to make it through the entire Bible in five years. So he had to skip around a lot, but we're right to where he's about to begin Jeremiah chapter 33. And our goal in this episode, if possible, is to go from 33 to 39. That is the goal. So this, I, I'm going to try to push this episode to an hour and 15 minutes is the goal. I don't want to go longer than that, but we will see. So are you ready? Bible's open. Book of Jeremiah. Let's start running and let's do that now. Now in chapter 33, we have God confirming and reaffirming the covenant that he made with David and that there is a day coming when he will restore them to the land and they will be restored to fellowship with God. Now I'm reading chapter 33, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison. He's still in jail, you see saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Now, I've been in testimony meetings and other meetings where verses of Scripture have been given and this is a verse that occurs, I would say, very frequently. And it's one that is a wonderful verse. Call unto me, and I'll answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Well, that's fine that we quote that maybe at times like that. But it becomes quite meaningless in my book unless you put it back where it belongs. 
And it is amazing how many times in the book of Jeremiah verses are ripped out of their context. I can't, I don't even get me started when you go to graduation ceremonies and someone's quoting from Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you. I'm like, these kids are not coming out of Babylonian captivity. These kids are not the nation of Israel or Judah. These words have nothing to do with their graduation or their future. It has nothing to do with them with someone and a school that's supposed to be an institution of education and learning. How the kids learn how to quote a verse of the Bible, I don't know, in its proper context. Do you think you, you know, because personally, I think if, if that demonstrates it to child, if, if, a, if a kid is quoting it, if it's a Val Victorian or Salutatorian quoting it in their speech, I want the kid's diploma to be revoked. Because he obviously doesn't have basic reading comprehension skills. He shouldn't be graduating from high school and definitely should not be graduating from college. So I think anytime a kid stands up and quotes, or anyone in the school quotes anything from Jeremiah that far out of context, they, they should re- their teaching license should be revoked. Their degree should be revoked because they don't have basic reading comprehension. That No, no, that's a, but guess what? I drive past churches that have verses on their signs from Jeremiah. And there's been times I've wanted to stop and go in and knock on the door and, you know, go up to the door. Yes. Are you the pastor? Oh yeah. Okay. Nice to meet you. Yeah. I see your sign out here and you have on the sign, you know, I know the plans I have for you to bless you, to to, to prosper you. Uh, so is that sign for the people inside your church? No, that sign is for anyone. No, sir. That sign is for those who came back from Babylonian captivity, Judah and Israel. So do you have some of the people who've returned from Babylonian captivity way back then in your congregation? Because I know there's none of them living currently in this city. So who is the sign for? Okay. So, but yeah, I, I haven't done that yet, but I've been very tempted. I've been very tempted because it's it's just so utterly ridiculous that people cannot, just people grab these verses from Jeremiah and just, I Look, the Bible is not, the Bible's not a buffet where you just go by and you see something you like, you just grab it. Okay, it's God's revelation written to certain people under certain situations. And these words must be understood in their proper context and applied properly. And if we're not even going to attempt to try to do that correctly, then maybe we just throw out the Bible and stop pretending. And just basically say that we are just going to do, just create our own religion with our own rules. Because clearly we just use the Bible for our own purposes anyway, right? Oh me or amen. All right, here we go. And that's right here in the 33rd chapter. You will recall last time we saw the man, he was still in prison. He bought a piece of real estate because God told him to. He acted by faith. And he bought the real estate. But he had a great many questions in his mind. Why was God letting this happen to his people? Why was God permitting this and letting them go into captivity? Now, he had his moments of doubt. And I think, frankly, it's an example of a great faith when you have these moments. Now, somebody's going to say, well... How can that be an example of great faith? Well, my friend, if you are walking with God and you're in fellowship with Him, He is so wonderful and He does so many wonderful things that there are times when you and I won't understand what He's doing. Oh, I 
I so applaud that. The sign of a great faith is someone who can have great doubt, someone who has big questions, someone who struggles. That's a sign of great faith. That's a sign of true faith. Because if you have true faith, a faith that is never doubted, a faith that is never questioned is not a true faith. It's a superficial faith. It's a pretend faith. It's where you're dressing up as, oh, God, everything is good and God is good and God is good all the time. Amen. And everything is great and praise the Lord and things are better and everything's wonderful and everything is great. And I'm just surrendering to God and I trust God. And, and there's never questions or doubts or struggles. I'm sorry. That faith is superficial. It's like, it's like you're putting on a mask. You're pretending, but a real faith, a strong faith, it has no fear of looking into the scriptures going, this makes no sense. God, I don't understand any of this. It's confusing because you're willing to acknowledge the reality in which you face because you have faith in God. If you, you have true faith, that faith is not, is not fearful of questioning and doubting and struggling because it trusts God, but it's willing to acknowledge I, but I don't understand. I, I think we've we've so created a fraudulent view that we're all supposed to walk around saying everything is wonderful, everything is great, everything is awesome, everything makes sense, instead of be willing to go, this makes no sense. This is so confusing. And I think we should be willing and able to do that. And there are times when God does something and our question is bound to be, well, why are you doing this? Why do you permit this? Don't you have questions like that? Well, I've got questions like that. I remember one evening going to the hospital to see my wife and our firstborn baby. <laughs> and the nurse said to me, said, the doctor wants to speak to you. The nurse looked very serious. And the doctor said to me, he says, the little baby died. <laughs> and I went in to my wife because he hadn't told her. And then we went in and we told her and we wept. And I walked out and I never shall forget. There at the hospital, there's a sort of a porch out, open air. And this was summertime. And I walked out on that, and I looked up toward the heavens and the stars, and I had a question. And you know what that question was? Why? And you want to know something? I still look up and ask that question. May I say to you that I've learned now, though, to put my hand in his and just keep walking in the dark. And many times I talk this over with him, and I tell him about my doubts, and that I trust him, though. And you see, faith has its doubts. Faith just won't understand everything. And I do know this, that the day is coming when he's going to explain it to me. And it's going to be a satisfactory explanation, but right now I'm still saying why. And I don't think it's wrong. I really don't. I think there's something wrong when, if I went out and put up a front and said, oh, I trust the Lord and everything's going to be all right and I've accepted it and I'm walking now with him and hallelujah. Well, friends, it just in that way, I walk with him by faith, but I'm a little child that says to him, why do you do this? And there are times that there are a lot of questions I don't have the answer for. 
And I'm thankful Jeremiah was that kind of a man. Man, that's so good, so real, so powerful. About my own, my own life, I can tell my own stories where I just, I just don't understand. I don't understand. Every time I turn on the news and I watch and I see, drive past a, if you ever been in a children's hospital or where there's children with terminal diseases, why? When you see stories of children being, you know, tr- human traffic, trafficked or for sex trafficking, you, you know, or children being molested, even sometimes within the church and rape and all the horrible things that why I don't understand why I don't understand why God why did you create a world knowing all this is going to happen why you can intervene why God did you not do this God why did you not intervene here and stop this person from sinning or why didn't you do this or why didn't why didn't you fix this or why didn't you fix that why 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 and guess what I still ask lots of whys now I've become better of knowing that you know what God's not going to give me an answer because the only answer I'm going to get is found right here in the pages of the Bible. And the Bible doesn't answer some of those questions. Because even people in the Bible didn't understand. Job didn't understand. There was t- times people in the Bible did not understand. And if they didn't understand and God was giving them direct revelation, well, how am I going to understand when God's direct revelation anymore is all has ceased other than what's in Scripture? All I can do is I keep reading. I keep studying. I keep struggling, I keep walking, I keep failing, I keep falling, I keep trying. But knowing that at least the one thing, the only thing I do know is my hope for salvation is not in my ability to understand. It's not in my ability to live out the Christian life in a perfect way. It's all because of what Christ has done for me. That's the one thing I can hold. That's the one thing I do know. Everything else I don't understand. There's so many things about the Bible I don't understand. So many things about God's ways I don't understand. So many things about God's thoughts I don't understand. So many things about from the very, I mean, I've told you, I've said it a million times. All of my problems began in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That, that's where all my problems start because why would God do the creating when he knows, when he knows what's coming? And it's okay. But see, when you ask these kind of questions, many Christians get defensive and they're, oh, there's answers. And they try to give you their answers and they try to pretend, look, stop that. Can we just admit there's things that make no sense? And I don't care how many apologetic answers you try to send me. I've read all of them. You can try to, you can convince yourself if that helps you sleep better at night, great. Doesn't help me sleep better at night because for every answer you give, there's a million other problems. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to cry out. It's okay to offer a lament to God where you give your spiritual scream of pain. It's okay to do so. You don't have to smile and say it's all good. And I find the other man in the scripture that had been the same way. We'll get to another prophet by the name of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, he had a lot of questions. In fact, his book is... Just a great big why. And there are other prophets that had that. Jonah had a few questions to ask the Lord. And my friend, it's not a revelation of lack of faith. It's just a revelation of hypocrisy when we put up a front. And I think God wants us to be honest above everything else. And because we are, I think he'll enable us to beat our music out. Now, the word of the Lord came unto him, and he's in prison. And God says to him in prison, now he says, Jeremiah, 
you call on me. <laughs> it's all right. I'll answer you. And I'm going to show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You remember Jeremiah started off by saying to the Lord, Well, there's nothing impossible with you. And since there's nothing impossible, why don't you do it another way? He says, I'll do it my way, but you can trust me. You call upon me, and I'll show you a few things. And I want to say this, that we're living in a world where God has been ruled out pretty much. But very frankly, I seem to see him moving very definitely. I dare not say to you what I believe that he's done in this nation today. I think God's been doing a little judging. I think God is still moving in the affairs of men today, though they may not acknowledge him. And that's exactly what you have here in this particular section or the next one that we're coming to. Now, I want to take up this marvelous, wonderful passage of Scripture here in the 33rd chapter, and it begins in the 14th verse. Now, before we get to the 14th verse, verse 3, hey, hey, Jeremiah, you may be in prison, but call on me and I will answer you. He's speaking to Jeremiah, and I'm going to show you great things. And then look down to verse 8, or look, verse 7. Here's some of those great things. Hey, um, I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. Hey, hey, I know they're suffering. And I know you don't understand. And I know there's judgment. And I know you're in prison. But know that I, the, I'm going to cause the captivity to end and I'm going to return. And they're going to be built back. Israel and Judah, both the north and the south, is going to be re- restored back to the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby, by, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy. A, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear of the good that I do unto them. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Hey, great things are coming. Everyone's going to be restored. Everything's going to be built back. And we could say, did that happen coming out of the Babylonian captivity? Maybe partially, but I think there's there's implications of this, obviously, for far greater. Verse 10, thus saith the Lord again, there shall be heard in this place, which you shall, which ye shall say, which ye say shall be desolate without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without an inhabitant and without blast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his mercy and forever and of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord for I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first saith the Lord hey everything may be desolate and Jeremiah has prophesied that things are going to be desolate and there's not going to be any man and there's going to be no man in the city but now God is like hey 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 great things are coming which you don't even understand everyone's going to be returned there's going to be joy there's going to be singing there's going to be praising everything's going to be wonderful verse 12, thus again, the Lord of hosts, thus saith the Lord of hosts again in this place, which is desolate without a man, without beasts. And in all the cities thereof shall be an habitation of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down and the cities of the mountains and the cities of the vale, and the cities of the South and in the land of Benjamin and in the palace places about 
Jerusalem. And in the cities of Judah shall the flocks pass uh, under the hands of him that telleth them, saith the Lord. All great things are coming. That is specifically for Jeremiah and prison, not to be ripped out of context. All right. Jeremiah is seeing this. Now, guess what? If he looks at his situation, what does he experience? Prison, persecution, suffering, captivity, death, destruction. So what he sees with his eyes could call into question what God is promising, but we cannot look to God's promises through the lens of our experience. We must see our experience through the lens of God's promise. And God's promise is, hey, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it appears to be, something is going to happen. Something is coming that goes beyond your ability to comprehend it or understand it or even how to perform it because God is going to do it. All right now, verse 14, this is where Dr. J. Vernon McGee wanted to skip down to. He skipped all of those others and he jumped down to verse 14. Now let's see how he handles verse 14 and following. And I hope that you will turn down. Now this is God's covenant with David and it's back in 2 Samuel the seventh chapter, God made a covenant with David. There'd be one to sit on his throne. That became the theme song of every prophet. In fact, they all sound like a stuck record. They are like that, and they all go back to that, and they all rest on that. Now, listen to Jeremiah. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I promised unto the house of Israel, to the house of Judah, in those days. Now, what days is that? Well, it's in that day that's coming, the day of the Lord. And at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he hasn't had a righteous branch so far, except one. <laughs> and that is the one that was born in Bethlehem. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. We haven't had any ruler like that yet. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah said canoe, the Lord our righteousness. And if we have any, it's Christ today. And this is so important. And this is why, this is why this understanding of Israel is so important. Israel and Judah doesn't deserve anything, but God made promises. He's going to keep those promises. And why is he going to keep those promises? Not because of what they did or could, because if you throw them out, and you say, well, hey, they failed, so God is done with them, and now it's the church. You're, you're destroying the entire concept of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of God's sovereign grace. Why is he going to do all this for them? Because he's going to save them and the Lord our righteousness. They're saved not because of their righteousness, but because God will be their righteousness. And guess what is true of you? God, it, Christ is your righteousness. He is your righteousness because his righteousness is imputed to you. But th listen to these promises. 
These promises haven't happened yet. There's no way this has happened. And you can't say, well, this, oh, this is Christ ruling and reigning over the church. No, there's coming a time he's going to rule and reign over Israel and they will be saved. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. And by the way, where do you think that man is today? There's not an Israelite on top side of the earth could make the claim to David's throne. But because the one that has that claim is sitting at God's right hand, because the psalmist said, "'Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool.'" And that's what God's busy doing today. He's calling out a people to his name and getting things ready to put his son on the throne of this universe Verse 19, now, I'm reading again. And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, if ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. Now, at this particular time, Zedekiah is on the throne. He is as corrupt as any man ever was. Nebuchadnezzar will put out his eyes, take him into captivity. That'll be the subject of this next chapter. And you would think that this would end the line of David. It would end the line of any other nation, I can assure you that. The king of Babylon, I don't think anybody's around to claim that throne today. There's no one around to take Alexander the Great's place, and there's no Pharaoh around in Egypt today. But there's one in David's line that can make that claim. And God says that he intends to put him on the throne of this universe someday. This is a great prophecy, by the way, and one that's very difficult to ignore and to try to spiritualize it. I think God means exactly what he says. Now, when we come here to chapter 34, Zedekiah's captivity now is... There's so much more we could do in 33. Look, if you've been reading 31 today... If you've been reading 31, I would add to your reading 33. Just you need to know these promises. You need to know these prophecies. And I'm telling you, they're not, they were not, they have never been fulfilled. And trying to have these fulfilled in some spiritual way destroys the significance of this and destroys the whole beautiful picture of grace and mercy. Israel does not deserve anything but judgment. But yet God is saying, hey, 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 I will do this. I will do this. They will be saved, not because they deserve it, but because of my grace and mercy, because I will be their righteousness. I have elected them. I will, I will justify them. Right now, Jeremiah chapter 34. Foretold. And I begin reading it, verse 1 of chapter 34. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth of his dominion, 
And all the people fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities thereof, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire, and thou shalt not escape out of his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand, and thine eyes shall behold the eyes of the king of Babylon, and he shall speak with thee mouth to mouth, and thou shalt go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah king of Judah. Thus saith the Lord to thee, Thou shalt not die by the sword, but thou shalt die in peace. And with the burnings of thy father, the former kings which were before thee, so shall they burn odors for thee. And they will lament thee, saying, Ah, Lord, I have pronounced the word, saith the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spake all these words unto Zedekiah king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, against Lachish and against Azekah, for these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. Now, he went on because Zedekiah attempted to make a decree and make a covenant to give liberty to the people. Verse 8, This is the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, after that the king Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them. Now, he didn't make good that covenant. In verse 16 we read, but ye turn, that is, this man Zedekiah, and those associated with him, but ye turned and polluted my name, or you profane my name, and caused every man his servant, every man his handmaid, whom he'd set at liberty at their pleasure to return, and brought them into subjection to be unto you for servants and for handmaid. You see, the life of the child of God is what the world will always look at. Now, this man, Zedekiah, pretended to bring liberty. And that's the way that uh, ruler of Israel could demonstrate to the world he was different, that he served the living and true God, that he'd grant liberty to the people. Now, he doesn't make good. And that not only brings the king himself into disrepute, but it profanes the name of God. And I think God's name today and God's Word is hurt more by those who profess to know Him than by all the godless professors that we've got in our colleges today. I actually believe that those who name the name of Christ by their lives, they hurt the cause of Christ more than those that are outside. You have polluted my name, God says. You profane my name. Now, he says in verse 17, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to famine. And I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. That's the way men made a contract in that day. 
They took a sacrifice, cut it in half, put half of the animal on one side, half on the other. Then they went between and joined hands, and that was like going before notary. That's what Abraham did, you remember. God told him to get the sacrifices ready, and God made a covenant with him. Now, we find a group, and this is always the remnant. In chapter 35, the Rechabites, they are part of the remnant. He went through 34 quickly. We could back up and try to understand exactly what this thing Zedekiah tried to do, but we just know that whatever he tried to do, he failed, and then God was upset for him basically not keeping the covenant that he had made with the people, and now he, well, he, he is judged for it. Now, Zedekiah was being judged for a number of things because of all the things he had done, but yeah, there there you have it. Now we come to chapter 35. I, we'll have to work on 34 more. I'm going to write down 34. He, he, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll keep track of the chapters that maybe we need to do more work on. But for, for this sake, I don't want to, I don't want to get us so bogged down back in 34. I just feel like he didn't do a very good job discussing it, but we'll let this play out. But I'm just going to put down Jeremiah 34. Maybe we'll we'll try to get some more work in on it. I don't know if we'll get it done before the end of August. I don't know. Um, it may be one of those chapters that I will try to uh, add maybe for at church. Uh, so we, we will see. We will see. But we'll move on to 35 and see. I think the other chapters, I think we did very good. I'm not so good with 34 there, but okay, let's, let's move on to 35. And they are different than any others. And God has given this to us to let you know, as he always says, there's always been a remnant, and that he would never leave the world without a witness. God, even in the darkest time of the history of the world, it's yet future in the Great Tribulation, when 144,000 have had to go undercover. They have had to go underground. There will be two witnesses that are going to stand for God because God just going to have it that way even in the time when Satan is permitted to run the whole show. At that time, God says, I'll still keep two witnesses around and they will be inviolate and you can't touch them until their mission has been accomplished. Now, the Rechabites and Jeremiah was told here to go. I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 35. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go unto the house of the Rechabites and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. In other words, they are brought in, actually, for the celebration of the Passover. They are still true to God. Who are they? Verse 16, Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their fathers which he commanded them, but this people hath not hearkened unto me. And God made a distinction, you see, between the remnant and the nation that had departed from him. This is given to us, I think, just to let us know that. Now I come to chapter 36, and we see here... He went through that one even faster. Here's what I would challenge you to do. Chapter 35, verse 2. Go unto the house of the Rechabites 
and speak unto them and bring them into the house of the Lord and into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Here's what I would challenge you to do. I do not have a Bible dictionary in front of me. I would challenge you. This is an additional home, a homework if you really want to. I mean, look, I can do the, the Bible study exercise has never been designed for me to do everything for you. It's supposed to get you up off the couch and actually into study. It's supposed to get you to a table with a Bible and a dictionary and a notebook. I want you today, look up the Rechabites and at least, well, as many Bible dictionaries as you can, and just write down, just summarize on paper your own words, uh, who the Rechabites were, their significance, anything you can find out about them. I have a Bible dictionary downstairs. Um, I should have brought it up here with me, but I do not. Um, yeah, I'm looking around. I don't. Most of my Bible dictionaries are at church, okay, because that's where we have them all. If I was at church and we were working through this, I'd be like, all right, everyone. In fact, I would have done this. I would have said, okay, everyone, grab the Bible dictionary. Let's look up the Rechabites. Who finds the entry first? And then we would just work through the entry together. But be, make sure before the end of this day, obviously, I want you to do the 15 I wills in Jeremiah 31. Obviously, I want you to read Jeremiah 31 at least 10 times, right? I, I at least want you to work on that, all right? But know who the Rechabites are. Know who the Rechabites are. I want to be, if if if, uh, if someone was to walk up to you tomorrow and go, hey, I was reading Jeremiah, Rechabites, who were they? And I want you to go, um, uh, uh, um. The Rechabites are, and be able to summarize it, all right? I'm going to call everyone who listens to this episode. I'm going to call your house at one o'clock in the morning. You're going to answer the phone going, hello, and I'm going to be like, who are the Rechabites? Who are the Rechabites? Tell me now. And you're going to be like, I am never listening to your podcast again, all right? Know who the Rechabites are, right? That is your job today, all right? Now, let's continue. The attitude of Jehoiakim toward the word of God. This man, Jeremiah, sends a message to him. Verse 1 of chapter 36. It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee from the days of Josiah even unto this day. Well, he sends it, and Baruch took the message over, verse 18. Then Baruch answered them. He pronounced all these words into me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. And they brought it now to the king. Verse 22, Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month. There was a fire on the hearth burning before him. came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the pen knife, cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. That's what he thought of the Word of God. Old Jehoiakim, why, he took the Word of God, he just flung it in the fire. He didn't care for it, he didn't accept it, didn't believe it. I'm not impressed that the Bible is still the bestseller. Yes, but who's reading it? Remember that little jingle. It says, Ma, I found an old dusty thing high upon the shelf. Just look. Why, that's a Bible, Tommy dear. Be careful, that's God's book. God's book, the young one said. Then, Ma, before we lose it, we'd better send it back to God, because you know we never use it. The Bible today is not being read. 
And we've attempted to start something that's pretty hard to get going. However, we've been amazed at the response to it. Yet I recognize that today that the multitude of people are like Jehoiakim. As far as they're concerned, they just well put it in the fire. They pay no attention to it. Verse 24, "...yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king." Now, if you think God's going to stop here, you're wrong. God said to Jeremiah, I want you to write it over again and send it to him. Verse 28, "...take thee again another roll, write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned." Verse 30, "...therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost." And that's exactly what happened to him. And he has none to sit on the throne of David today. The Lord Jesus did not come in that line. Joseph was in that line. Mary was not. She came from Nathan, another son of David. And from her, he got the blood title to the throne. And from Joseph, the legal title. But none in the line of Jehoiakim was to sit on the throne. Now we have come here to the 37th chapter of Jeremiah. And and probably the only thing I would say about 36, 36 is a pretty straightforward story uh, you know, about how someone obviously doesn't like the Word of God and tries to get rid of it, and God will keep His Word and preserve His Word. But I just find it funny listening to someone like Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I don't even know what year this was, the 80s, 70s, whatever year it was. Um and he's complained, nobody will read the Bible. And I just, my whole Christian life has been, uh, I've heard it from the, in the 80s, heard in the 90s, heard in the 2000s, heard in the 2010s. I don't really hear much about it now anymore because now the church has become so political. But it used to be, we've got an epidemic in the church. No one will read the Bible. No one will study the Bible. Uh, we People are biblically illiterate. People are theologically illiterate. People are illiterate when it comes to church history. We got to fix this. We got to do something about it. We got to fix this. We got to do something about it. And while they kept yelling and screaming that there was a problem, seminary professors were like, look, these kids who are raised in the church, they come to seminary and I got to start over with like Christianity 101 because they're not ready to go to seminary. I don't know what you people are doing in the church, but you're not equipping them, right? I heard all of this and all the articles and studies. And, and but then at that time, all you could see in the church was a youth group was fun, food, fellowship, potlucks, pizza parties, lock-ins. They weren't learning anything. The adults, it was fun, food, fellowship, the church. Nobody took it really serious to fix the problem. And I don't think the problem ever got fixed. Now, I used to be very frustrated with the church and very irritated with the church and very much condemning the church. But now, to be honest, I think it's the people. They don't take the Bible and throw it into an actual fire. They don't cut it with a pen knife. They just don't care. They don't care. You can spend hours on a podcast saying, we're going to work through the book of Jeremiah. I do one episode about Alex Jones and eschatology. That's the number one broadcast <laughs> on Sermons 2.0 app for me, for me, not, not for everyone, but for me, for me. And I'm like, how is that number one? Right? Not the study of Jeremiah. Look at, I can look at all the numbers and like, Nobody cares that we're, we're spending an entire summer in the book of Jeremiah. Nobody's dedicated to it. Nobody, nobody. And people will go to churches 
That's one of the things I used to laugh at about the 10, the, the sermon, Paul Washer, his famous sermon, the 10 indictments against the modern church or whatever it's called. I, I knew so many people like, this is such an amazing sermon. He's going after the church. And I'd be like, look at the church you go to. Your church is guilty of all. Well, I'm not happy with everything in my church. Yeah, but guess what? You'll never pack up and leave and go to some little broken down small church. No, you keep going to the big churches with the big programs while you sit there and talk a big game that you want something different. But when someone tries to offer something actually different, telling you to get off the couch and actually study the Bible, you won't do it. You won't do the work. You won't spend the time. You won't put forth, put forth the effort. And you'll be just as ignorant of the scripture as these studies tell everyone that they are. Because people don't really want to do the work. We talk a big game about how important the Bible is. I've seen it in my own ministry. People are like, oh, I want to learn how to study the Bible. No one's ever taught me how to study the Bible. And you spend hours teaching people the Bible study methods. You can bit, you can kill yourself teaching people 12 Bible study methods. Will people use them? No. Will people use them on a regular and consistent basis? No. Will people dedicate a specific time every day to read and to study? No, they do everything else. They, they may dedicate specific time to go to the gym. They may dedicate specific time for this hobby. People don't really care that much about the Bible. And that's okay because we're all flesh and ungodly. I don't really have such a problem that people don't. I have a problem that people won't just admit. You know what? The reality is I don't care to study. The reality is I don't care to read. And the reality is... I don't really care how de- how in depth my church teaches because I-, I like this. I like the people and I like the activities. Just as long as you're honest, I got no problem. I just don't like the pretending. I don't like the pretending. It's it's like when Christians. It's like you can have a group of lost people. They get together. And it's like, well, it's just a party. It's a get together. When Christians get together, we have to always spiritual. It's a time of fellowship. And it's like, stop with your sanctimonious garbage. You got together and hung out and ate food and had some fun. It's nothing spiritual going on. Stop pretending. But, but so I think Christians, we get, we pay lip service to the word of God. We may not take a physical penknife and throw it into a physical fire, but as he gave that little illustration, you know, some kid climbs up on a shelf one day and go, what's this book? It's covered in 18 pounds of dirt. That's God's word, son. Well, you may want to send it back to God because nobody's using it. I mean, we, I, I started this marathon with playing a clip from a sermon on the book of Jeremiah with a pastor going, hey, you know, you can't preach that long, you know, 20, 30 minute sermons. That's the best you can do. And he's like, you know, amen, right? And everybody's like, amen. He's like, hey, you're just as carnal as I am. That's that's at least a church. Now, the one thing I admit, that's a church where everyone's admitting, hey, we're carnal. We don't want long sermons. And so we're going to cover, we're going to cover the book of Jeremiah and little 20 minute sermons. Okay. Well, you know what? At least, the one thing I admired about that, at least it was b- brutally honest. It's much better than everyone pretending to care that much about God's word when they don't. Actually, we have now moved into a new section of the book. The emphasis from now on is historical. It's almost like Jeremiah is saying now, I told you so. But he's too much involved. He is crushed. He is broken 
by the message that he's had to give and now to see it fulfilled and the city that he loved and the people he loved and the nation he loved going now into captivity and the city destroyed. So that this is not, I told you so, from Jeremiah, but it's the heartbreak of a man who was involved in this program of God, and he is revealing God. He's God's witness. And if you want to know how God feels about all of this, look at the tears streaming down the eyes of Jeremiah. And we need to recognize that over 30 years of this man's ministry has gone by. We saw him as a young man, about 20 years of age, as he began his ministry as a young priest who was called to be a prophet of God. And he was a prophet of God. Now he's in prison, and he's not only in prison, but outside the walls of Jerusalem, there's the army of the king of Babylon. And they have been there now in a long siege of 18 months. And Jeremiah doesn't go into a great deal of detail here, but actually, if you go back to the second book of Kings and the second book of Chronicles, and you would find a record of it. In fact, the last chapter of Jeremiah, the 52nd chapter, covers that, and I probably will be referring to that in this section that we're in. Now we have here the fall of Jerusalem in chapters 37, 38, and 39. And we want to cover these chapters here. In chapter 37 we see this man now put into prison. And he was put into prison because of the fact that he had said to the king that he was not to make an alliance with Pharaoh and that he was to surrender to Babylon. And he almost did the very opposite of what God had told him to do. And this was Zedekiah. We are now at the very door of the captivity of the nation. Verse 11, and I drop down to read that. It came to pass that when the army of the Chaldeans was broken up from Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, then Jeremiah went forth out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to separate himself thence in the midst of the people." Now, what had happened was this, that Nebuchadnezzar was coming down for the third, and actually for him the last time, he was going to destroy Jerusalem. Before, he'd just taken a certain number of the people captive and had put someone on the throne there. In fact, he had put Zedekiah on the throne. And Zedekiah was his vassal, but he certainly wanted to get out from and under the king of Babylon, and he made an overture to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Pharaoh in Egypt decided to come up and try to relieve the king. And, of course, what he would do, he just moved the southern kingdom of Judah under the rule of Egypt. The thing was that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, came up, and Nebuchadnezzar then his commanders that were there, they turned, and instead of besieging the city, they went after Pharaoh and actually drove him back. And Israel made a big mistake in this. And now we find 
that it looks at this point as if Jeremiah might be wrong. And so Jeremiah, while the city is being relieved, he comes out of the city to go up to his hometown of Anathoth. And when he does, will you notice what we're told, verse 12, "...then Jeremiah went forth out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to separate himself thence in the midst of the people." And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the ward was there, whose name was Arijah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he took Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Thou fallest away to the Chaldeans. Now they make an accusation against Jeremiah that he's going over to the enemy. Verse 14, Then said Jeremiah, It's false. I fall not away to the Chaldeans, but he hearkened not to him. So Elijah took Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Wherefore the princes were wroth with Jeremiah and smote him, put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. And he's here actually in the court of the prison, and that's where they were keeping him now. And this, by the way, is the fourth time. It's the fourth time that poor Jeremiah's been arrested and thrown in prison. And there's one more coming up, by the way. Now, here in chapter 38, I would challenge you to find all the places where Jeremiah is in prison. Find each account of where Jeremiah is in prison. Because if it happens five times in the book... Just remembering those examples, just like just the circumstances. Here's where he was put in prison. Here are the circumstances. You're cover, you're you're getting kind of a larger. These things that help you get a bigger picture of the book are important to do so. So find the places, all the times that he was put in prison, and the circumstances surrounding it. This man is still in prison. Jeremiah is, and the thing that he does, he sends from prison a message to Zedekiah to obey God at this time, because outside is the army, and the army is going to destroy the city. Now, I want to read here, beginning with verse 17 of chapter 38. Then said Jeremiah unto Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If thou wilt assuredly go forth unto the king of Babylon's princes, then thy soul shall live, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and thou shall live in thine house. He said, Surrender. You can't resist this man, and this is the thing that you should do. You should surrender at this particular time. And I cannot repeat enough this theme over and over in Jeremiah. It's, hey, guys, don't fight. Surrender to this pagan king. Surrender to this enemy. Don't fight. Don't rebel. Don't revolt. Surrender. Submit. And I'm telling you, that's a message that Christians in America would resist outright. But it's kind of a message over and over and over to submit to the authority, even when the authority is ungodly. And someone's going to say, well, in Acts, in Acts, they, they, they disobeyed. They disobeyed the religious leaders when the religious leaders told them not to preach in the name of Jesus. Well, of course, Zedekiah did not listen, did not heed the message. Now, I read on, verse 18, "...but if thou wilt not go forth to the king of Babylon's princess, then shall this city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, 
They shall burn it with fire, and thou shalt not escape out of their hand. And Zedekiah the king said unto Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews that are fallen to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand, and they mock me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver thee. Obey, I beseech thee, the voice of the Lord. You see, this man Zedekiah was so involved, because he was a coward at heart, in trying to make peace with everybody and please everybody. He was a typical politician, and as a result, he pleased nobody. And he's now got his nation in a great deal of difficulty. Now he says, verse 21, If thou refuse to go forth, this is the word that the Lord hath showed me. And behold, all the women that are left in the king of Judah's house shall be brought forth to the king of Babylon's princess. And those women shall say, Thy friends have set thee on and have prevailed against thee. Thy feet are sunk in the mire, and they are turned away back. And this is a very interesting picture, and I won't have time to develop it. But if you would go through here, you would find out that womanhood at this time was pretty much corrupt. And as a result, when womanhood becomes corrupt in any nation, there's very little hope for it on a moral plane. And that is exactly, of course, what you have here. But now this is the message that he gives. And the message is not heeded. This man Zedekiah would not listen to Jeremiah. He still listened to the false prophets. Now, verse 28 of chapter 38. So Jeremiah abode in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. Now, you see, this is largely historical through here, what really took place. Now, in chapter 39, what we have here is the awful thing that happened. And we're told, and I'm reading now verse 1 of chapter 39, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, King of Judah, in the tenth month came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the fourth month, the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. That's important to note. Now I drop down to verse 7. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. We have that statement made, and there are two great truths that are self-evident up to this point. Now, Jerusalem has fallen, and Babylon now has taken it, and the city is destroyed, and the temple is burned. Now, if you want the record of that, if you went over to the 52nd chapter, of Jeremiah. That's the last chapter. This is sort of a retrospect. It looks back to what took place, and this evidently was impressed upon the mind of Jeremiah. It says here, verse 4, "...it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign in the tenth month of the tenth day of the month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, built forts against it, so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. 
You see, he had come really three times against Jerusalem. He took it the first time, and he just put Jehoiachin. Then the second time he came, and Jehoiachin had rebelled. Then he put this man, Zedekiah, on the throne. He was an uncle, but a young man. But he rebelled, and now he's come for the last time. And he is destroying the city of Jerusalem. And you have the record here in this chapter, which I'm not going to read, but it's a very horrible picture of how he took the city and he carried away captives, certain of the poor of the people and the residue of the people that remained in the city, those that fell away and fell to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude. Now some went over to the king of Babylon, and he carried away a great delegation at this time. But the thing that he did here, and it was a thing that is very terrible, he put out Zedekiah's eyes. First of all, he slew the sons of Zedekiah before him. Verse 6 of chapter 39. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah, before his eyes also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Verse 7, Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes, found him with chains to carry him to Babylon. That's a frightful picture now that we have here. And this begins what our Lord Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And I insist that though they have the city today, that they are not trodding the old city, that the Gentiles are still actually in control. Most of the holy places there, Israel doesn't have a one of them, except a wailing wall. They've got a wall to go to and weep, and that's all they've got in the old city. But the words of the Lord Jesus are still true. Now the other thing is something that's difficult for this generation to accept. And that is the fact of the judgment of God, that the judgment of God comes upon a nation, it comes upon a family, it comes upon an individual. And for 40 years, Jeremiah had proclaimed the word of Jehovah. He had denounced the sins of the people. He called these people to repentance and they had not. And God was patient, and his patience deceived them. It enabled the false prophets to say, See, the words of Jeremiah have not come to pass. Now they have come to pass, and it's too late now. You remember, because that judgment against an evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of man is in them to do evil. Because God doesn't move hurriedly. Now, I used to think as a boy, and when I was a boy, I was a good boy, but I always got with bad boys. That was my problem. And we used to steal peaches and apples and eggs and watermelons, anything else we could. And I know that one time that I was up in a peach tree, and my those peaches were nice, and the owner of it, I heard him call my name. And... And I looked down, and there he was looking up at me. And you know, I felt at that moment that fire would come out of heaven, and God would strike me with a lightning bolt. 
And after that, every time, remember one time in a watermelon patch, couldn't get through the fence. I got hung up on a barbed wire, and I thought somebody was after me, but there wasn't. It was just a bad conscience. But I felt like any moment that there would come a lightning bolt and just end it all as far as I was concerned, you see. And a great many people today think that because God doesn't move immediately, that means that he's being generous with you. It means that he's not going to do anything. You know, there's an old proverb, uh, at least one of the, I guess it was one of the Greek poets that said it, the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. And God does let a people go on and on and an individual until there comes a time there is no remedy. That's where we come here. And the day that this man Nebuchadnezzar broke into the city, it says here, as we have seen, that he besieged it, and that that day, the ninth month, the city was broken up. From that moment on, it's too late. Now, it's difficult for man to accept that today that God judges. And I want to spend just a moment with this, because some of you are really going to think I'm a square, because this is outmoded today. But I want you to notice a few things and see how outmoded this is. Humanity. Mankind does not like to hear that God is going to judge. And they just can't believe that God ever gets angry. And you find that everywhere. Let me say this. You find it in the New Testament. Now, there are those today that say the God of the Old Testament, he was a God of wrath. But when you come to the New Testament, well, it's altogether different. May I say to you that there's more divine wrath and anger in the New Testament than there is in the Old? Read the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew and listen to the gentle Jesus speak. And that's what makes it frightful when he says, "'Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites.'" And when you read the book of Revelation, "'And the bowls of wrath are poured out.'" And there's nothing like that in the Old Testament. So that when you say today that the Old Testament has the God of wrath, the New Testament the God of love, it's almost the other way around. But just happens to be that he's a God of love, and he's a God also of wrath and of anger, and that he punishes sin. And you find here the thing we've mentioned before, the bitter and the sweet. You find divine judgment down by the very side of divine mercy. And the throne of God today, there's a throne of grace and a place to find mercy and help. But that very throne is going to judge this earth someday and that's what makes it extremely difficult for man to see and understand. Now, the very interesting thing is, not only is it in the New Testament, but you'll find that that is true in nature. Have you ever stopped to think today that you find the anger and judgment of God in nature? Well, if you don't believe it, 
then I would suggest that you go up to Yosemite Valley, and there's a place called El Capitan, the sheer surface of a rock, several thousand feet high, and step off of it and see what happens. In nature, there are certain laws, and they're inexorable. And my friend, if you obey them and you're good, well, may I say to you, that you'll live. But I want to say this to you, if you break them, you're going to die. The man that went to the moon, we think it's such a wonderful feat. It was. But you know what actually happened? They just were using the laws of God, and you know what they were doing? They were obeying them. They didn't break them. They didn't dare break them. When they started out to the moon, they didn't start toward the moon. They start to where it would be when they got there. And they knew it would be there. It wasn't there at the time, but they knew it would be there because that's one of the laws of God. There's movement in this universe. And it follows a certain law and a pattern. And if you ignore it, those fellows would still be out under somewhere in space. And they would not be alive. And also, when they got on the moon... They didn't say, well, now let's take off our helmets and run around here and have a lot of fun. (laughs) They didn't dare do that. They had to recognize that the law of gravity was different there and there was not any air there. And you better obey those laws. If you obey them, you'll live. If you disobey them, you'll die. Who says that? God says that. God is a God of love. And... This is where he said, I've loved you with an everlasting love, but you're judged now because you've disobeyed the anger of God and the judgment of God. You don't like it? Then step off of a ten-story building that man makes, and you'll find out God has the law of gravitation working there. And he won't revoke it. He won't repeal it. He won't dissolve it to please you. May I say to you, you'll find it's there. Then may I say to you that you not only find this is a revelation of God in nature and that nature proclaims his vengeance, his anger, and his punishment, but you're also going to find it in human history. Human history does that. All you have to do is walk down through the corridor of time and look at the debris and the ashes and the wreckage of the great civilizations of this world. They testify that he's a God of vengeance, a God of punishment, a God of judgment. And when they turn from high ideals and from a lofty moral plane to base ideals, they go down and they pass off the stage of human history. And it's time some of our intellectuals in this country are beginning to read history aright today and that God moves in human history. Now, I want to say that I feel like a square saying this, but may I also say to you, I don't feel so bad about it because Jeremiah was a square and the king was pig-headed. Old Zedekiah was pig-headed. And the intellectuals at that day, the sophisticates, the one who thought they knew it all, the ones who had ruled God out, they were stupid. They were stupid, my beloved. So 
when today I'm called an intellectual obscurantist, I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, it must not be good, and that's what they call me. May I say to you, I don't mind being that, because I'm fine. I'm in very good company. fact of the matter is, I find out God is in this area. Until next time, may God bless you, my beloved. And there he now, is. Now, this man, Jeremiah, who's... Okay, I think, that's the, I think that's the end of chapter 39. I think that's the end. Hang on, let me make sure. Let me make sure. Let me make sure. He's been giving these prophecies, had also sent a prophecy down to Nebuchadnezzar. And as we saw back in the book of Jeremiah, he had made a trip down there himself. Now we read in verse 11 of chapter 39, Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzar Adan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look well to him and do him no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. Okay, well, I guess he still has more to do in 39. I thought that was the end of 39. That would be a great time to wrap it up, but we'll have to... Oh, wow. I don't... I think we... Well, you know what? We, we'll, we'll just stop right there because we're already well over an hour, well over an hour. And I wanted to keep this as an hour. But he ended that strongly with God's judgment. God is a God of judgment. And he is. And he is. But let me remind you of this over and over and over. Yes, do this, you will live. Do this, you will die. Because of our depravity, because of our sin nature, saved and unsaved, we're never going to do it. Our hope then is not in what we can do. Our hope is in someone who can obey all of those rules, and that is Christ Jesus. And by faith, his obedience is imputed to my account. That is the way we escape it, not by just doing right. And that's why ultimately in the book of Jeremiah, God has to step in and said, I've told you to do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. You failed, failed, failed. So now I will, I will, I will. And those are the 15 I wills in Jeremiah 31. I will, I will, I will, I will do this. I will fix it. I will redeem you. I, and then if you continue on beyond 31, I, I, the Lord is our righteousness. God has to do, God has to step in and do it for us because we are sinful and cannot do it for ourselves. All right. So we'll have to stop there. That's odd. And if you say, well, how did you not know? Because on my software, uh, we have been at zero, 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 zero for like 30 minutes. Okay. I thought we were going to be done a long time ago. So I'm going to have to back this up and figure out why it's saying zero, zero, zero and see what the last part to do there with chapter 39. And then, then the next time tomorrow, our job is to go from 40 to 49 is what we're going to try to do tomorrow or maybe 40 to 52. It'll, it'll probably be Wednesday before we really get through all of this. Uh, but there you go. That's some strong words there at the end, but God is a God of judgment. We should never forget that. Never, we never water down the sternness of God's law. We never wa water down his judgment. But at the same time, our hope is not trying to appease the God of judgment by what we can do, but running and fleeing to Christ and his righteousness and obedience. Right. That's very important. All right. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. You can stop. You can stop running now. You can sit down. I know you're exhausted. I know that went a long time, but you can rest. You can relax. And we'll pick up the book of Jeremiah. We'll get to the conclusion.
as fast as we can. We only have a few days left. I promise you we will get there. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And I'll look and see how much audio we have left. And what we may have to do is just listen to a little bit of that. And then I'll flip the, uh, the file over for the next file in the book of Jeremiah, which will be 40 to 49, uh, as we listen to, as we listen and respond and uh, critique and analyze how Dr. J. Vernon McGee handled many of these chapters. All right. Thanks for listening. May God bless you.